0: Presented by the hockey shop Source for Sports Story. This is In Goal Radio the Podcast. The Stanley Cup Championship has been completed, and we have a wide range of success from the different equipment manufacturers throughout this summer and into the fall. The Vesna trophy winner, War CCM, the Stanley Cup champion, Don Bauer, and the Stanley Cup finalist in Anton Hudobin, War Vaughn. Hi, everybody. I'm Darren Millard. This is InGoal Radio, the podcast. A feature interview today by Sammy Joe Small, who joins us, the author, the Olympian, and she is quite outstanding in her conversation with David Hutchison. And our gear segment with the Hockey Shop, Source for Sports Surrey, with Cam. We'll deal with the Bauer Ultrasonic gloves. But as we bring in the co-founders of InGoal Magazine, David Hutchison and Kevin Woodley. Guys, how about that? Uh, Three different equipment manufacturers enjoying real successes in the course of this spring. I think it speaks to the options that goaltenders have, Woody.
1: Yeah, no, and I I think that actually goes beyond that, to be honest with you, Darren. Um, Andre Vasileski, not just in the Bauer gear, but uh, one of the early adopters of the ultrasonic knee, even though he was in a vapor pad, he had it set up with that ultrasonic uh, stabilis slide knee, where it's completely fixed to the face of the pad. Uh, Henrik Lundqvist, another early adopter, and um, so Vasi gets his first playoff shutout in the final game of the playoffs and the first Stanley, second Russian to win the Stanley Cup as a starter, first goalie to do it wearing the Stabilis slide knee. And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't recognize another company that had a lot of success um during the pause and had some big news the day after the Stanley Cup was decided. Uh, true hockey has purchased LaFave. Uh, and is going to be taking over and working with the LeFaves to build gear. And obviously, we saw a lot of guys make that switch during the pause. And so, you know, they operated as a small independent uh, from January on. And I think you have to tip your hat to the work that they got done and, and the way they were able to make inroads in the NHL. Guys like Carter Hart wearing it, Jordan Bennington uh, for the most part, wearing it. He went back and forth a little bit on gloves. Uh, Semyon Varlamov into the Eastern Conference Final wearing their new gear. And now, heading into next season, that gear will have a true logo on it. And you mentioned Connor Hellebuck, uh, one of the few goalies in the NHL with a true stick. And I think about 70% of NHLers wearing true skates. So this is a big, big news day for the goalie industry to have, uh, you know, sort of the tradition heritage brand of Lefave and, and Pat and Michel, his father, uh, and the work they've done over the years. Uh, now absorb purchased by true and have them continue on building gear under the true brand uh, for us it's a win i think for goalies it's a win anytime you have more players in the industry uh it's a positive especially when it's one that that has the resources frankly that true obviously if you're a golfer you know true temper shafts uh and the work they've done there and and they've had success so um yeah we've got another brand uh another sort of uh goalie category that that they've hopped into and that's that's big news and and like I said, uh, as much as Vasi in the in the Bauer pads and and all those things, I, I think they may not have made the Stanley Cup final, but I think you got to tip your hat to the job Lafave did, and uh, it results in a purchase by True. And and like I said, some exciting times ahead. Be interesting to see what this means for retail. I had some conversations behind the scenes already and have some ideas there, but we're going to wait to let them sort of get them feet their feet under themselves
0: uh, before they they announce those plans. Don't want to be scooping anybody just yet. David Hutchison and Kevin Woodley joining Darren Millard here on InGoal Radio, the podcast. Uh, Just uh, reading some of the social posts from InGoal magazine, uh, you kind of get an impression why so many of the players were willing to switch so early just uh, because of the support that that was obviously in the pipeline uh, from Lefebvre over to True and the financial compensation. It looks like there's some endorsement deals uh, coming towards uh, some of these guys that were switching. Yeah,
1: listen, like there's, um, you know, for a lot of these guys it's it's not even a switch right like it's the same gear that they were wearing now important right. to point out that you know a, a bunch tried their new product and three guys switched i think um actually maybe four i guess if you count bernier and crawford but in terms of the playoffs varlamov stayed in the 20.1 um so that's a new that is a new pad but for the most part the guys that were in their 12.1 that's essentially an e-flex pad they were wearing it under the ccm brand built by lefebvre so some continuity there for guys. And, you know, admittedly, maybe I was dismissive at times because of that continuity. I didn't brand it as a switch because it was the same people building the same thing for the most part. There were some changes in it. And one of the things that, you know, like I said, as much as everyone was cheering it on because they were a small independent um, and guys were switching, despite the fact there wasn't a big name brand behind it, the reality was, is we had NHL goaltenders telling us that this was coming. You know, I think goalie gear nerd, our friend over there, branded as the worst kept secret in hockey that True and Lefebvre were partnering up. And part of that partnership was the NHL goalies themselves telling us that, you know, no promises made, but the expectation was that there would be sponsorship deals as there are with most major manufacturers waiting on the other side of this true partnership. For the guys that like the gear first and foremost, there would be those opportunities as well.
0: You mentioned that, uh, Henrik Lundqvist was one of those goaltenders in the, uh, Stabilis slide and yet his world has turned upside down. Uh, Hutch, just, uh, the thought on the buyout by the New York Rangers on Henrik Lundqvist and end of a 15 year era there.
2: Oh, uh, it's, uh, I don't think it surprises anybody that it came. I think, uh, it was also one of the worst kept secrets in, in hockey. Um, and I'm glad that the Rangers are trying to handle it, uh, in the in the best way that they can and to leave it for henrik to be the the one to comment on his future uh at the same time when somebody's given 15 years to an organization i think it's uh very challenging for that break to happen and uh and uh i I feel for him and i feel for the organization and for the fans of new york but uh at the same time uh doesn't it lead into one of the most exciting off seasons that we're ever going to see in the goal goaltending community and uh I certainly hope it's not the last that we see of Henrik Lundqvist on, on NHL Ice. Are you hearing anything, Woody? I'm hearing that he still
1: wants to play, but I'm not going to make, make it up yeah. in terms of pretending I've had any contact or insights. He's been great to us over the years, a guy who responds to emails, uh, a guy who has provided us feedback on whether it's equipment or training techniques. He's just been, he's, He has been a real friend to us at Ingle for so long. Uh, didn't feel like this was the time to be sending uh, messages asking him what the decisions were and things like that. Um, that said, uh, listen, we've made it clear uh, we are biased, but we handed it over to an unbiased writer in Paul Campbell for the article that's now up at ingolmag.com. We, we actually had it up earlier this summer, but it's, it, the timing now is perfect to go back and check it out at Ingle Premium. Uh, Paul Campbell had access to, cl- to ClearSight Analytics data, was given access to it on Henrik Lundqvist, and I think it's really important to remember that the raw numbers that everyone else is talking about and, and looking at him being 38 years old and saying maybe he's done, when you adjust them for the quality that he saw behind that Rangers defense, and man, did he see a lot of high quality? Before they went to a three-goalie system when Shesterkin came up early January, Henrik Lundqvist was top six in the NHL and adjusted, say, percentage behind that team. He can still play. Maybe not the amount of games he used to, maybe not as consistently at the high level we, we were so spoiled with, but he can still play. And in the right environment, I think he can help a Stanley Cup contender, as weird as it's going to be to see him in any other, not just the uniform. I mean, the mask is iconic. The pads are iconic, like the last of sort of an iconic look that he created with Bauer in New York, and I'm going to miss that. But I still hope I get to see him play because I still think he can play. That said, the caveat is he's never played anywhere else. He's never played for another goalie coach. Him and Benoit Lair are like hand in glove in terms of being on the same page. And I do wonder, wherever he goes, as good as I think he can still be, just how big an adjustment it will be for him, both in terms of his surroundings, his environment. Uh, I don't think team you can adjust to, but voices, goalie coach voices things like that, this is this is going to be a big change. And there's probably going to be an adjustment period. And and teams are going to have to be comfortable with that. Um, And and maybe that's even challenging if we get into a condensed season, shortened season point. Do you have the time to let Hendrik Lundqvist find his feet and get comfortable in a new environment if everything is short and tight? Speaking of short and tight, that wasn't
0: my answer. I am going to uh, go down a path here. And it's not going to be anything that has an, uh, uh, any factual background. I'm not hearing this. But uh, but follow me here, Hutch, because uh, you will certainly be more on the uh, the same generational path uh, as uh, as I. Uh, that's a compliment to Woody, who's younger than us. But uh, I would like to see Henrik Lundqvist join either marc Andre Fleury or Braden Holtby as a tandem in Toronto, and replicate Terry Sawchuk and Johnny Bauer and a Stanley Cup championship tandem. Uh, from 1967 with the Toronto Maple Leafs, and that's the way the Toronto Maple Leafs end their drought. That is just a tie-in of, of the past and the present in two or three veteran goaltenders coming together. I'm not saying there's any factual basis behind it, but it's a good story. Oh, dude, as pipe dreams go, <laughs> you just blew my mind. Two Hall of Famers yeah.
1: on the same team, and listen, my Im- to get into real information, my yeah. understanding is the least aren't, despite all this chatter, um, they are probably not moving right. Frederick Anderson, but oh man, like, and so this is not a a statement about Frederick Anderson. I think he's really good and he's
0: been really good there, but no, oh no my this is really me fantasizing about oh, it's a hell of a, revisiting. it's a hell
1: of a fantasy, Darren. And I love it.
0: Like, oh, very, very cool. I just thought, thought I'd throw that out there that we've got a couple of, uh, Stanley cup champions, uh, in in Holtby and Flurry, and a Hall of Famer in uh, Henrik Lundqvist and just putting them all together. be very cool, uh, a la Sochuk and Bauer. Last Stanley Cup uh, that the Toronto Maple Leafs won had that tandem in place. Uh, of course, Henrik Lundqvist uh, sports the uh, great Bauer look, and that is our gear segment this week with Cam over at uh, the Hockey Shop, Source for Sports Surrey, and we'll send it over to Woody, who's uh, in that uh, little piece of, uh, well, he'll explain it, Dealing with the Bauer Ultrasonic Gloves. Woody.
1: Welcome back to the Hockey Shop Source for Sports here in beautiful Surrey, British Columbia, the outskirts of Vancouver. We are on the lower floor of the Hockey Shop, uh, what I like to call goalie heaven. Of course, you can find them if you can't join them here in person at thehockeyshop.com. we got Cam Matwood with us. Uh, And today for the gear segment on the podcast and a little bonus video for everyone, um, we're going to talk about ultrasonic, blocker, and glove. I've got the blocker on. That means Cam is going to lead us off talking about the glove, the new Bauer Supreme ultrasonic glove. We've talked about the pads already.
3: What's the big change for the glove? What's the feedback you guys have had so far? So, I mean, the feedback's been fantastic to start out with um biggest thing guys are always talking about um right off the bat is the closure of the glove that's had its biggest improvement especially from the the 2s in particular um that easy closure right out of the box like i haven't baked this glove you can see it on camera for once now we can actually talk about it closing right off the bat yeah
1: that's gonna play well on radio
3: <laughs> but you, you can watch it uh, later on at another time um basically what Bauer's done is that they've added catch light all the way throughout uh the surface of the palm something that we found uh in the 2X glove um, that appeared in the Vapor. That's what helped uh, aid it um, in that uh, easy, snappy closure off the box. And now they've kind of brought that technology into
1: what is their Supreme line, basically. So basically, like we loved the 2S glove in terms of the closure, the shape, um, the break. Kind of reminded us a little more of that uh, sort of 600, if you're making the comparison to CCM in terms of how it fits on the hand, how it closes. Interestingly enough, I thought depending on how, how you stuff your hand into it, you could kind of affect it. could be a little more of a 590 type break. Like it really depended how you put your hand in it. Um, but to be perfectly honest, after even a year and a ton of use, it was still a little stiff. Uh, our feedback has been the same with this glove. They fixed that. Uh, this thing right out of the box is snappy, opens and closes, um, just feels good on your hand. Uh, any, any other changes that you, in terms of the feedback and the features that, that you guys have encountered
3: um, just the general overall feel hasn't changed, which was important to them. Um, again, cause they had, they, you know, they heard the feedback, especially, um, you know, even what you just described there, like closure was on point, everything was feeling right. It was just the stiffness was the big problem. Um, so rather than completely kind of reinventing the wheel with it, they kept a lot of things the same familiarity in this, you know, side of the territory isn't so bad. Um, again, that big focus on having that easy break in off the shelf was what their biggest goal was when coming out of it. Okay,
1: so now let's switch over to the blocker, which I'm wearing. And the first thing that people noticed uh, for us in terms of our testers was just how much better it felt on their hand. And better is such a stupid, ambiguous term. You know, how do you quantify that? Like, it just it felt snugger. It felt more form fitting. And in talking to the guys at Bauer a big part of it was there's actually less material involved.
3: Yes. That's uh, that's one of the big ones too. It's like it less is more here and it feels like more, even though it is less, um, that quattro palm that they're using is super soft and super supple. So you get that nice, you know, really comfy feel when you put the blocker on right off the bat. But again, like you alluded to, they took some of that material kind of out of the palm, out of the thumb to have less of that bunching. We'll call it for lack of a better term. Um, another big call, out definitely that cuff that you're looking at right there as well. Um, quite a bit more open, allowing a nice uh, fingers forward style of a stance without the blocker kind of digging into you. It flexes, it's got two elastics on the side of it to allow it to stretch forward. You really get that fingers forward position with this blocker.
1: The other thing about this, like we used to like forever and ever, I think a lot of people said a blocker was a blocker and we always tried to point out some of the differences in our reviews. But I think one key aspect of this, and it goes Dates back through the lines, especially to 2S Pro and the 2X side of things as well. Much like the pads themselves, pucks rocket off the face of this thing.
3: Yeah, I think it, like, it's safe to say that Bowers kind of, without really saying it, they've come out and said, no, blocker is not just a blocker. This should be an important piece of your equipment. And I think it's evident in the design and also, you know, the functionality of the blockers they've been producing, you know, especially since we'll call it the 2X Vapor, when we really, really started to take notice about how it pops off, how it feels, what the balance point is of that blocker. You know, the general feedback was excellent. This is continuing off that for sure. Now, in
1: terms of balance point and where the hand sits on this on a stock blocker, uh, this is pretty much a, a middle center hand position?
3: Correct. A uh, bit of a steeper um, deflection angle um, than when compared to the, uh, the 2X the Vapor. Um, also the blocker itself is a little bit of a thicker feel, but it doesn't ruin that same balance point that you get out of that vapor though. All right. So there you go. There's the, the Bauer Supreme ultrasonic blocker
1: and glove. Um, you've already heard the review we did last week on the pads on in goal radio, uh, in the gear segment, make sure you go check that out. For those of you who are watching on video, we're actually just going to continue that Uh, And we're going to go back and take a look at the video on the pads right now. So let's grab those, Cam. We'll say goodbye to the podcast side and remind the podcast side as we tune out that make sure you check all our social media channels for the opportunity to watch this full thing on video as well.
0: See, I love that segment. I love the fact that I can look for the video, too, uh, in in a little bit here, Woody. Well, we're working on it. Let's just say it's
1: a work in progress with Cam. We're trying to decide whether we want to get production value, me by myself, Hutch is on the island. I need someone smarter than me to run the equipment. So me by myself Mm -hmm. trying to pull this off, we're going to have to see how it looks. We may go to Instagram Live. People hit us up in the comments. Let us know what Ooh, you would like yeah. to see. Do you want to turn our weekly segments into a dual Instagram Live? So we have a video component that you can see later on. Do you want us to put it on YouTube? We're trying to figure this all out ourselves. We want to bring a little more video, a little more pop on top of the gear segment here uh, at In Goal Radio, the podcast. So hit us up. Let us know. Send us an email. Um, Hutch, what's that email address?
2: Uh that would be podcast at ingolmag.com.
0: And I could just see that glove snap and shut when you guys were talking about how nicely it closes even without being heated up. Yeah,
1: it's um it is a big step. I liked the 2S Pro Glove a lot, but as we said in that in that review, it just never got buttery soft. Even even after over a year playing it, still love the glove, but it never it still doesn't close as well as the ultrasonic does. Right out of the box. So big improvement. It started with their 2X glove. Impressive. Now it's into the ultrasonic glove. You combine all the things that made goalies love the 2S Pro glove with the ability to snap it close like that. And like I said, uh, as NS Camp said, just Bauer continuing to build and progress their line and a lot of positive feedback, not just from us at Ingle, but from the other goalies we talked to.
0: Segue over to our feature interview and I'm going to admit when I listened to this conversation before we started up the podcast today, uh, that uh, David Hutchinson had with Sammy Joe Small, uh, I'm telling you, like Sammy Joe Small and I separated at birth. We're both Manitobans, but when she talked about reading Tretiak's book, uh when she talked about uh what she used to do like uh jumping around the house and making saves and borrowing equipment from the community center, I mean, man, that, that just lockstep, and it was a really cool conversation. Uh, Hutch, you want to set up the interview for us uh, because this is an author, this is a, a world champion, and this is one of the greatest human beings that I've met.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the resume speaks for itself. And and to be honest, Darren, um, one thing we haven't mentioned is I, I had uh, a new reporter join me for the interview. Right, um, y- Young uh, Brooklyn Barudis is a goaltender from Nanaimo here and I've known her for a long time. Um, very bright, very articulate young woman. And I sort of thought when the book came out that a lot of it might be directed towards inspiring young women, and it absolutely will. Uh, so I thought I needed Brooklyn to maybe join me, read the book, and, and offer her opinions. And, and it was fantastic because there's a great little um, coincidence in there that, that Sammy went through a similar experience interviewing uh, her hero, uh, Manon Rayom. And so that was fun that that happened. Um, but at the same time, as soon as I got into the book, I found it, it absolutely inspiring for me as well. Uh, much as you mentioned, Darren, reminding me of my childhood for me, some of the most incredible hockey games I've ever watched were, uh, women's games at the Olympics and world championship. Uh, never forget, um, never forget the last one that went down to, uh, a post and then finally a win for Canada. And, and so I loved every bit of the book and there were so many stories. We love to swap stories here that, uh, go beyond what you see in, in regular media for goaltending. And there are so many in this book, uh, as I do mention, uh, in the interview, the fact that she made her own upper body gear at Stanford university as an engineering student and then wore it in the world championships. I mean, that's what we all dreamt of doing as kids. And then she did it. Um, absolutely incredible. And an inspiring athlete. She was, A a scholarship track and field athlete. She represented Canada on, on the track as a thrower. Um, just, just really, I I loved every bit of the interview and, and, uh, and very honestly could not put the book down as soon as I open it up. So highly recommended.
0: We'll let uh, Woody chime in after you listen to the conversation with Sammy, Joe small and David Hutchison, the feature interview on in goal radio, the podcast presented by the hockey shop source for sports, Surrey. Enjoy.
2: Congratulations, uh, Sammy. Today, I believe, is officially book launch day.
4: That's correct. Thank you so much, David. I'm glad I could be on the show. Finally talk (laughs) goaltending.
2: That's great fun. Uh, How long has it taken you to put the book together?
4: So, I mean, I wish I was quicker, but it basically has been a 10-year project for me. I initially wrote it right after the Vancouver Olympics. and really with the sole intention, I work as a professional speaker. I just kind of wanted a book for back of the room sales, to be honest, that's what speakers do. Um, and it was sort of the next step in my speaking career. And, um, when I started writing the book, I realized that, um, the story was, was bigger than myself. It, it included so many characters and so many people. And I wanted to do justice to those women. I wanted to really portray them in a way that, um, that mattered in history because I think this is a, a segment of history that has been forgotten. Um, women's sports history in general, I think, is is forgotten, and so people might know the Cassie Campbells or the Haley Wickenheisers of the world, but they don't know all the other names that went into it. And there's 20 women that get to compete on the world stage, but there's you know another 60 that are vying for those spots every year. And I really wanted to highlight those women. Um, so when I sort of finished that first manuscript, I realized. Well, A, I wasn't a very good writer. So um, I took some classes, tried to figure out how to do this. I was a mechanical engineer by trade. So it took me a little while to sort of transform from the technical writing into uh, really putting myself in the story and making it engaging and um, taking the reader right there with me. So I hope I've done that in this book. That took a while to rewrite each of the stories. And then on top of that, I went and uh, rewatched all the game tape to ensure that the historical references and data was correct. Um, looked at some of the box scores for games that weren't televised, but my mom mm-hmm. had had recorded most of the games. Being in Winnipeg, she wasn't there live, so she would record them on VHS video. But I didn't have a VHS player, so <laughs> I had to like transform those into MP3s, and it was just a whole process. And then. Um, we got pregnant i had my daughter and anybody that uh, has kids knows that that just kind of takes over um and it wasn't until she started kindergarten that i had this manuscript on my shelf that i thought maybe it's maybe it's time um i suddenly had free time during the day that didn't exist as a parent for the longest time so that's when i decided to um sort of shop it around and ended up signing with ecw press about a year ago so then it kind of gets into their funnel and it's taken a year of uh, process in that time. Um, just a little bit more editing um, and sort of fine-tuning some of the details, uh, taking some of the stories out. That was, that was a tough part. Mm-hmm. Um, and really making it so that it was about the reader and uh, about my teammates. And um, yeah, so it's been quite the journey. And this is day one, I guess.
2: Well, a a, a new day one of of many um Mm -hmm. well you know you say the women's game gets forgotten but uh as I was reading through the book and and you did a great job because I couldn't put it down um, (laughs) it brought back so many memories of some of the most exciting hockey games I've ever seen have been Canada versus the U.S. on the international stage um so it's an incredible game and thank you for sharing that with us but let's go back even a little bit further um because you laced them up the first time around five years of age, and we asked this of just about every goaltender on the show here. How did you get started and and why did you want to become a goaltender?
4: Well, I think every goalie has their own journey. Um, a lot of women of my age became goalies. That was sort of forced upon them. But for me, I had this ultimate fascination with the gear. i just I loved the gear. and um I can remember myself watching and I you know I talk a lot to other goalies that um, have done this and watching Hockey Night in Canada uh, as a young girl and drawing pictures of the goalies and their equipment um, as I was watching Um, and I can remember jumping up and down on my bed uh, making saves thinking I was the goalie and I wanted to be the goalie really badly as a young girl but my parents didn't want me to be the goalie they were not really um, you know, involved in the hockey scene prior and they just didn't want to buy the, all the equipment if it was just a whim. And so they kept me as a player. I I stayed as a player until I was about nine years of age. Um, of course we rotated and at the odd time. Um, but at nine years of age was the first year I convinced them and we didn't buy, um, equipment. Uh, my, my local community center, luckily at the time had equipment that we could borrow. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if that exists anymore. Uh, still does. It still way, does. Yeah. It does. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's uh, yeah. uh So I remember going to, I, I, I tell a story in the book about picking out my first equipment and I got the ugliest leftover stuff, but once I put it on, it just, it felt like the guys that I watched on TV. Like I just felt like this warrior and I, I just loved that feeling. I think that I had a predisposition to individual sports. Um, I, I, uh, talk a lot in the book about being a track and field athlete. And I think that lent itself to goaltending very well um, because I did like being part of the team, but I liked having it being individual, it being about me that it was, you know, the save that I could make versus that other player. And uh, I loved the the technical aspect of it. I loved, I used to um, check out books in my school library uh, by goaltenders. The first one that I remember um, was the Vladislav Tretiak book where he talks about his training. It's like a bigger style right. book. I don't know, do you remember that one? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, just trying some of the Russian method uh, at home. I mean, we knew nothing really about goaltending and I had no goalie coaches, so I just would. Check yeah, out that people. stood
2: out. That really stood out from the book that, that you were just a, a great athlete, but you had to sort of find your way in the sport, didn't you?
4: I think a lot of goaltenders of that era that was the case right because we didn't have social media we didn't um you know i can remember getting the goalie magazine every month uh my mom Mm -hmm. would get it for me from the um uh from the bookstore and just like putting those pictures up on my wall of all those different goaltenders um you know leafing through the newspaper and and finding the pictures of the goaltenders to see like how they stood and see see what they did and Often the hockey games were on pretty late, so I didn't always get to watch them uh, live, but I could see pictures of them of what they were doing. And I think that that just is a depiction of that era of goaltending, probably that era of sport in general is we didn't get to see it live as much. so, uh, my first foray into seeing, uh, the Winnipeg Jets live, uh, was, um, I got to go to a few games, but then I got chosen as a junior Jets reporter when I was really little and I got to go to one of their practices and, um, see Bobby Essenza uh, live. Uh-huh, yes! it was just, it was so cool to see how they actually practiced. I didn't, I didn't know anything about that. Um, so that was a really neat, uh, thing and. Yeah, so I guess I've always had an affinity for it. It just was a matter of convincing my parents.
2: As it is for many people. Mm-hmm. Um Bob has been a guest on the podcast before too, so um nice to bring that around and and we we discovered that we have another little common story here that's come up because when when I heard about the book, um I didn't feel that maybe I was necessarily qualified to to really respond to it um as well as I could and I knew that you would have a piece of this hoping to sort of inspire other young women. So I invited a young friend of mine along. Brooklyn Baroudis is with us. Welcome, Brooklyn. Hello. Brooklyn is a 15-year-old goaltender from uh, my town, Nanaimo here. And I asked Brooklyn if she'd uh, join me in reading the book and join us for the interview. And then while reading the book, we discovered that uh, here we are sort of replicating a scene from your younger life right after being a Jets reporter. Do you want to tell us that story?
5: For sure. Well, first, hi, Brooklyn. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to hear more about
4: uh, your journey in goaltending, but I'll tell you first about me meeting Mano and then you can tell me a little bit about yourself. When I was um, probably around your age, I write the story in the book about um, going to my local radio station. Um, it, was, it wasn't it was David's basement. It was <laughs> a local radio station. And the Secox is a French radio station. And um, I knew that I was going to get to talk to Mano that day. And I I don't know how you're feeling. Um, uh, For me, I felt like I was so, I didn't want to say the wrong thing. I was so nervous. I wanted, but I wanted to play it super cool. I wanted to pretend like this was just a normal experience that I was going through. But inside I had all these emotions that I, there's a million questions, but that I didn't know what was the right one to ask. And I just want you to know that Mano made me feel so at ease and made me see herself just as a person, as another goaltender. So Um, I hope that you can see me that way and that ultimately we're peers. We are just two girls that really love goaltending. And um, so whatever questions you have, there aren't any wrong ones. And I likely can learn just as much from you as you can from me. So I want you to tell me a little bit about um, your career and where you play.
5: Well, so I'm originally from Calgary and Mm -hmm. I started playing hockey when I was around six I played out, rotated around, and then I was, I think, nine also when I my dad got the goalie gear, and I put it on, and I enjoyed myself a ton, and from since then, I moved to Nanaimo when I was 10, and I played, like, the rep team, boys' rep team that year, mm-hmm. and I've just continued on since then. I've enjoyed it every more each year. Do you play boys hockey now or girls hockey? No, I'm playing, I've played a girls rep for the two years. And
4: what is the girls
5: rep team there? It's called, called? well, the team I play on is called impact. It's a double A. And who do you guys play against? Is it just Nanaimo or you play against the island or what do you? Well, there's only two teams of the girls double A on the island. Uh, So we play against teams from Vancouver, Kelowna, Kamloops. But there is another AAA team that I didn't make this year, but they're the only team on the island.
4: And so when you guys are, do you guys travel a ton then in the AA loop? Yeah, you Mm -hmm. do. And now Mm -hmm. with the pandemic, have you guys been able to get back on the ice or not yet?
5: We've gone for practices, but not any games yet we're trying to get together about four teams mainland here in the south and hopefully that works for the season but nothing yet and as a goalie do you have to wear a face shield or is it just sort of status quo now just pretty much my cage still okay yeah gotcha well very cool thank you so much for being on the show with me I appreciate Mm -hmm. that
2: and and you have something else in common too, don't you, Brooklyn?
5: I do. I do javelin. I've done javelin for about two years now. Um, that's so awesome. When I read that in the book, I was like, "Wow, that's crazy!" Like, there's so many things.
4: So, how did you get exposed to javelin? Because I feel like it's such a rare thing in Canada.
5: Did you well, have a thing at your school? Uh, sort of. My friend Maya had done running and her coach came to our school and I started doing track with them and he said hey you play baseball I used to I don't anymore but do you want to give throwing events a try and I said sure let's let's see how it goes and I liked it a lot more than the running yeah. and it's I was easier I can't <laughs> I don't remember what I did last year. I don't remember whether I made it to the islands or not, but I've continued on this year and through COVID, I didn't have any like track meets this year, but I kept practicing throughout the summer and I'm hoping to keep going with it. That's awesome. And do you find that it's kind of like goaltending, that it's all about those like technical small details? Yeah, it really is. I also really agree with like the independent sport kind of thing and how as a goalie, you're kind of competing against yourself, sort of like is in track, like with my personal record and as well as the other goalie on the team. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I like that. It's almost like you don't have to answer to anybody. You, mm-hmm.
4: What you put in is what you get out. Right. Yeah. And, I
5: really yeah. like that. But you mm-hmm. still
2: get to be part of a team, which mm-hmm. is what's great about goaltending. Exactly. Sammy, I really enjoyed the part in the book, actually, as you just brought it up here, where you were um, going back and forth between an experience training. um, I thought it was the discus at the time, but. um, Yeah, I I could be wrong, Right. Mm -hmm. And and then goaltending coaching as well, sort of alternating paragraphs, comparing them. And then you guys just talked about it. Can you tell us about
4: that? Yeah, it's it's such a technical event. And um, I think track and field itself is a really great base sport for anybody to do because it um, teaches you um, such body awareness that it lends itself to any sport. Mm-hmm. It also teaches you how to um, track the minutiae of the technique. So um, it, within track and field, logbooks are, are just standard form. Um, they've only recently kind of come into hockey, but we uh, kept log books on what we did every day. I mean, what the practice is, how far you're throwing, how you're feeling, um, what you need to work on. Um, but it's funny. My husband is a sledge hockey player for Canada. I don't know if you knew that, but he is fine for his uh, six straight Paralympic games and he is quite the athlete. I mean, he's one of the best sledge hockey players in the world um, and he plays wheelchair tennis. He had played wheelchair basketball on the junior national team. So he's quite the athlete. And so, I obviously have this passion for throwing and he's a big guy. So I was like, I think you'd be really good at this. And so we started training and um, he sits in a wheelchair normally. So uh, wheelchair throwing and Brooklyn, I don't know if you know this, but wheelchair throwing, you strap yourself in to a chair and then you basically just throw normally. But uh, in able body throwing, you get to um, have a break while everybody else goes. In um, disabled throwing, you do all six throws in a row. So you're strapped in and then you just like chuck it and you get a little bit of a breather. You get like a minute between each one, but you don't kind of get to go back and regroup. And, but anyways, during the practice, um, he's throwing the discus and, uh, you know, I'm giving him some pointers and he's, he's doing quite well. And, uh, he, after the practice, after the first practice, he says to me, so you throw it, you get it, you throw it again, you get it. Like, is that, is that fun? I said, well, I guess it's like goaltending. You're just you're doing the movement over and over and over and over, and you're finding the joy in the process. And I think that that's what I tried to relate between the two is that um, you know, is that fun? I had to stop and think about it. Is this fun? (laughs) Did I spend a lifetime doing things that are boring? Um, But I really did. I do find joy, and it's almost. I don't know. It's almost meditative for me that when you're going through the motions of over and over and over and over, um, it uh, just has this this sense that you're in a different zone. And um, I think also in throwing, you really have to listen to a coach. And I had never really had goalie coaching, uh, but I talk about in the book getting goalie coaching with the national team for the first time, and um, it being difficult to listen to the coach because I'd done it myself for so long, but luckily I had an individual sport background where I knew that this, this could help me. And I needed to, I needed to listen. And I think that that has served me my entire career. And I think is the reason that I was able to play, um, for another decade after I was, uh, finished with the national team is that I was willing to put myself in a situation where coaches, um, where I could listen to coaches and, uh learn new techniques because I would um my goalie coach here is Jamie McGuire um at the McGuire School of Goaltending. And um I found him actually after my national team career, which is too bad. But he helped me with the Toronto Furies. And so many times I would go up uh, to a session, he's up at York, so it'd be like an hour drive to get there. And I'd get on the ice and there'd be like eight and nine year old kids doing techniques better than me because it was new. You know, it suddenly we have to put our foot on the post and not in front of the post. And I mean, all these things that were just so, um, normal for me. I mean, I basically started my career with skate saves and finished my career with, uh, you know, uh, reverse, whatever. I mean, it just, I just feel like it, it changed so dramatically, but I was willing to put myself in a position, um, where I could accept that I didn't know, and then I could listen to somebody else who had the knowledge and and just and just repeat the practice over and over and
5: over and over until you get it.
2: Wonderful, Brooklyn. Uh, anything you wanted to ask from the book?
5: Um, personally, my one of my favorite moments of it was you talking about your first Olympic experience. I really, for some reason, I just really found it like so inspiring like just hearing about that first time that you were playing at that level with a girls team especially coming from a boys team and i just love to hear more about that
4: for sure i mean i think for you that has played boys hockey you probably really can relate to this that um i think sometimes as females in a male dominated arena whatever it happens to be it could be goaltending hockey or really in the workforce wherever um I think we forget that others are doing what we're doing. And so when I joined the women's team, my initial reaction was these girls probably can't play hockey. And when I saw the speed and the skill, um, you know, it wasn't the same as uh, the men's teams that I had played on, and yet they're still scoring. And I, it was really difficult to get past that almost chauvinistic mentality to realize that these women had strength and skill and had different skills Um, and to see the game in a different way, because the game is very different. And Brooklyn, you can attest to this, that in in men's hockey, I mean, guys can push guys out of the way in front of the net. Well, in women's hockey, that can't happen. So you suddenly are, are faced with so many screenshots, the player can come in further because they can't be attacked. I mean, they can't sort of keep them to the outside. And so players tend to shoot more from the slot and in front of traffic. And while it might be, not be the same strength, uh, they certainly can pick corners. So um, I think that that was a tough transition for me into the women's game. And talking to Shannon Zabados about this too, it's um, you really have to do a mind shift. You have to be, um, you have to be willing to put yourself in that new situation. And um see it as a game unto itself and not judge yourself for the goals that you perhaps still let in. I mean, I still was letting in a ton of goals. Um, And it took me a while to sort of figure out the female shooters, the women's shooters. Um, You know, in men's hockey, they could step off the sideboards and take a shot. Well, in women's hockey at the time, that, that was non-existent. You know, they would have to um, have the two feet planted. And so, knowing when a female would shoot versus when a male would shoot was, it took me a little while to sort of adjust to that and um, to have the confidence that I could be there alongside them too, that um, that I could work my way up to getting to that same level. And um, I had the amazing opportunity today, I did a radio interview, and they called in to the um, radio interview, um, what a 20 years later, uh, mm-hmm. more than 20 years later. And it was really amazing uh, to get to speak to her all these years later and to thank her um, for um, taking me under her wing. Because for me, she was such a hero and a role model and a mentor that when I finally joined the national team, I saw I was so in in awe of her. And she just treated me like another goaltender, Um, you know, teaching me the ways. And obviously she had played hockey at the highest level in men's hockey and she had made the transition. Um, and if she could do it, then, you know, I could do it too. And I think that's a unique position for most goalies of that era is we were always kind of going flipping back and forth and it wasn't always easy, like, you know, um, but uh, making that mind shift is a big part of it. I would agree. (laughs) What was the, um, uh, the most surprising part of the book for you, Brooklyn or David?
2: I've got a long list of them.
4: Of surprising things.
2: Uh, Well, yeah, I thought it was um, getting off the bench wearing sweats to hop into a game, (laughs) to playing for Sweden, to, um, and I know Brooklyn wanted to ask you about school, so this is the one that really stood out for me, uh, designing your own upper body gear while an engineering student at Stanford and wearing it at the World Championships. I mean, we all sewed some gear here and there when we were younger, but that's a whole nother level, so tell me about that.
4: For sure, yeah, it was... um... It was plastics from the, like, literally what was kind of the the dollar store in the Bay Area. Um, We just kind of buy some plastics and you makeshift this upper body gear. And I just, I don't know, I had just had this confidence that I could, that I could wear it. And um, so I did. I mean, we, we didn't get that, that free gear back in the day. I, I got my first free pads when I joined uh, the Olympic team. I got a pair of Louisville's so and I was just so excited to get them, but it's not like we got upper body gear and we got like the underpants or anything like that. So um, this gear that I had designed, um, I used it as my thesis uh, in, I, I studied mechanical engineering, but within engineering, there's uh, two streams. You can go in thermodynamics or you can kind of go into more of the art stuff, which is product design. Within product design, you had to choose a product that um, you felt like you could do a better job of creating. And at the time, um, uh, David, you might remember this, but Mission Hockey had just gotten into women's skates. So they made skates that were different for women with a lower Achilles heel. I, there was some sort of different anatomy. And uh, Manon uh, was actually living in California. She was playing in Bakersfield at the time. And so we played a lot of roller hockey together uh, at the time. And it just intrigued me that um, women's hockey was starting to have sort of equipment of their own. Uh, Louisville had just come out with a women's shoulder pad uh, that basically just had breast cups put on it, (laughs) which was so hilarious to me because I was like, that's clearly there was no woman involved in any of this design. (laughs) And so I set out to basically just um, revamp upper body goalie equipment because I thought, you know, they're. Um, for me, as a goaltender as a female goaltender, um I was getting hit in the sides a lot like and it just it didn't feel good like that just was not it's like why is this happening i don 't have stuff that you know so I could make shift, I could sew some stuff, but I thought I could make something way cooler than this, and I feel like what I ended up designing was something that um wasn 't strictly a male or female designed uh piece. Um, because I think a lot of men's bodies are very different too. And, um, you know, it was, it has, uh, the two piece design was the first time that it wasn't just like a back catcher's design. So the two piece Mm -hmm. design, uh, was something new and sort of revolutionary within, uh, goaltending that's now gone on to morphed into 15 piece design. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but it was neat to be at the, at sort of the beginning. And when I moved to, uh, Toronto, I actually did, so my sponsor at the time was Franklin when they were involved in uh, goaltending for a brief stint there and um, I did some work with Franklin designing some of their pieces Um, and unfortunately the most of the goaltending community is out in the London area here in the GTA where they manufacture most of the stuff and that's quite a drive from Toronto so It just kind of fell by the wayside for me. I mean, I loved it and I loved designing the stuff, uh, but I just didn't really have the time being a full-time athlete. Um, but I still continue to
5: modify everything that I get.
2: Wonderful. Brooklyn, what were you thinking about school?
5: Well, I was really surprised and impressed by how you managed to play professional hockey and go to Stanford for engineering and do your track and field. And I think my biggest question was just what recommendations would you have for a young girl going into university, or anyone for that matter, about balancing sports and work?
4: For sure. So I think balance um, is super important. I think whatever you end up doing, whatever that is your passion, and you might not know your passion, and that's okay. When I first started at Stanford, I actually started in pre-med, because I thought that's what smart people do. And, um, you know, I just kind of was, had morphed into that and told myself I was going to be a doctor. And then I volunteered at the local hospital in, uh, at Stanford. And I realized that these doctors, like this was their passion. This is, they love doing this. And this was like a 24 hour job, 24 hour day job. And I wasn't going to get to play sports if I, this became my world. And so I. Within that, uh, sort of transitioned some of the courses into what was like a biomechanical engineering, because I thought, well, I could still kind of be a doctor, but I love the way the, the body movement um, just sort of went hand in hand with sport. Um, so did some uh, study and research on artificial hips and knees and things like that, but it wasn't really a full-time endeavor at Stanford. And I took my first course in the mechanical engineering school where we got to build stuff. And that to me was just so cool. Like we got to build stuff with uh, uh, wood lathes and uh, pour hot metal and all these things that I was like, this is exactly what I've done my whole life growing up. I just didn't know that you could study it. Um, So eventually what I say to kids is, um, and not that you're a kid, but to um, prospective adults, we'll say, um, is that eventually you'll find something you like doing. Um, but until then, um, whatever you're doing, try, just try to do the best you can and ensure that you have some balance of other things because then you're not, you know, you have a bad test and it doesn't linger with you all night if you have to go to hockey practice, because then when you're on the ice, you're, um, you know, thinking about something else and, um, for that moment and the more other things that you can sort of balance your life with. Uh, I think that's incredibly helpful. And what hockey was for me while I was at Stanford, it was kind of my solace, my time away. I mean, I was uh, obviously full-time engineering. It was hard. It was difficult. There's classes that I failed um, because they were just, they were so hard. And suddenly I was at uh, school with some of the best students in the United States and from around the world. Um, But it's that acceptance that it's okay to fail and it's okay to redo it, um, to not sort of get hung up on that that eventually that degree is what matters and it's finding, you know, what, what is it that really ultimately matters? Um, and so I did the, I was doing engineering. Uh, I was obviously on scholarship for track and field, which brings its own uh, pressures. Uh, but what hockey was, was just a time away. It was sort of my hour that I could just be me and, um, not have anybody care. And, um, so I'm so glad that I had that opportunity within the game. Um many of my teammates uh with Team Canada, current players, play in hockey and it, it becomes the be-all end-all. And I get it, when they're done, if they haven't made the national team or maybe after the national team career, they're they're just done from hockey because they're burnt out. It's just it's too much. Um, and so having something else in your life that allows you to find some moments of reprieve, I think, are really important. So it could be learning how to play the piano or it could be something different that sort of takes your mind away from that. And uh, so I don't know that, you know, obviously I, I became meticulously planned because you have to be. Um, but that's not to say that things at certain times didn't fall by the wayside, that I didn't fail classes or that I didn't have games that I got pulled from or that I didn't uh, triple fault in the javelin. I mean, there, all of that happened. It's, uh, but the balance allowed me to sort of move forward and, and keep plugging plug forward to try to just do the best you can each and every day.
2: I think it's um, you know we often talk about the the small lessons that hockey that goaltending bring to us that go beyond the game and uh, the book is filled with them as as you were describing right here just comparing that hockey experience to your school experience
4: for sure and what I try to do in the book is really not pass judgment I wanted the reader to evoke their own memories and their own emotions and depending on where you're at in your life I'm sure that um, David you versus you Brooklyn have had Um, had different experiences with the book and different parts of it resonate and 10 years from now, different parts will resonate. And, you know, I didn't want to write a book that was, um, sort of life lessons. This is what you should take away from it. Um, I wanted you to feel what I went through and, um, think for yourself how some of the moments in your life relate to that and how they're similar and maybe what you would have done in those situations.
2: It's, um. The women's game is, is really remarkable in the sense that you go through an entire season for a single game and the, the mental pressure that you must all face. Uh, I don't think any of us can relate to.
4: You're right. I mean, I think that it looks like from the outside that we are just playing that one game, but what team Canada really does is, um, they do a great job and our club system does a great job of alleviating that stress uh, and providing a full season for us, um, So when you're training for the Olympics in hockey, and you're centralized in Calgary, you probably play 60 games uh, prior to even getting to the Olympic Games. Um, And then obviously, there's a round robin and uh, so on and so forth. There's one game that the world sees. And so yes, that's an enormous amount of pressure. But for us in our daily grind, um, we're trying to duplicate that on a daily basis so that it isn't just about that one game. It's about inconsistent and performing all the time. And so that when you get into that one game, it is automatic. um, And it becomes, you know, just you and the net and the puck and just like every other game. And so the club system within the country, that's also what it provides. It provides that opportunity to vie for championships, to be in games where you're down by a goal, where you're up by a goal, um, where you feel like everything is on the line. And um, so I think that Any athlete, um, those are the the moments that need to be consistent and, um, that's not, that's not easy, but duplicating what you would do in a huge game in a really pressure filled game, trying to duplicate that on a daily basis, uh, then prepares you for those big moments. Whenever they might happen, you might get called on in the least expected times, like the times where you have a, um, yellow sweatshirt and you are (laughs) fully dressed (laughs) Um, And you're um, bundled up and you might be expected to play against the Americans. Um, So you just, you never know when those moments are going to come. Uh, But if you've prepared in the right way, no matter what you happen to have done that day, um, you will be ready.
2: Yeah, and and I I hope I didn't come across as suggesting there is only one game in the season. Um, (laughs) The change in the women's game to enable that buildup now, I think is fantastic. Uh, I only mean it in the sense that you know, Stanley cup final was last night. Um, I'm sure the Dallas players are, are incredibly disappointed right now, but they'll be able to look back on this experience and say, what an incredible achievement to make that final or other teams yeah. are just thrilled to have to one around in the Stanley cup playoffs. But, but you went into those gold medal games, whether it's the worlds, the Olympics, um, you sort of expected to win and, and you're disappointed if you're not. In, in for a sure. different way. I think
4: that, you know, I, at one moment in the book, I write that history will be remembered by this one game. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess what the message I want to get across is that for us as uh, athletes within the system, um, history is uh, more than is more than that. And um, that sometimes making the team actually all the time making the team in uh, for Team Canada is harder than going to the Olympic Games. Making the team is where it is uh, uh, cutthroat, where you're competing against your peers, where you're having to struggle with the emotions of uh, seeing somebody else fail and elevating yourself to a new level, and um, trying to support somebody while still outperforming them. Um, So the difficulty that is uh, for us is that entire cycle that goes into the Olympic Games. So it culminates in that one game at the Olympics, but really it's a four-year um build up to it and the coaches do a good job the system does a good job of preparing you for that moment so that it feels like another game i mean you know that it is big and you know that it's huge but um if you have prepared in the right way you're just going to be on automatic pilot you're just going to be playing um i think if you are just thrown into that system without having you know played in front of packed arenas or without having Um, been in an overtime against the Americans prior, uh, then it can be overwhelming. Uh, But we were prepared and that's really a testament to the system and to um, the way that they laid everything out and prepared us for four years for what seems like from the outside for that one moment, that one game.
2: Great lessons for all of us. You have uh, both played and managed at the professional level as well in the women's game. And and so as we're talking about um, that build up and that preparation for for all of women's uh, the women's game. Uh, what's next? What, what 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 do we need to see to take the women's game to the next level and to create more opportunities for young women like Brooklyn in the game?
4: For sure. So I think the first thing is to celebrate the amazing opportunities that do exist because I think for myself as a young girl, it wasn't an Olympic sport. There was no uh, college opportunities. There's no provincial teams. Um, there was no AA or AAA hockey for girls. Um, so celebrating the, the progress that we've made in the last decade or two, I think is really important. Um, and that's what I really tried to do in this book. Um, what the future holds for elite women's hockey, uh, I think is unknown. And I, you know, I wish I, I knew the solution um to sort of the two sides that have created themselves within this game right now. So on the one hand, we have the Pro Women's Uh Hockey Players Association, and on the other side, we have the National Women's Hockey League a professional league that exists in the States that has just expanded to Toronto. Um, And we have two sides to it. We have personalities that don't get along and are not really, both think that they are right and are moving the game forward. Um, And that will just, we'll just have to wait and see. I mean, it's hard as an alumnus and for somebody that's been so involved in the game to now be on the outside um, without a say. And maybe that's not a bad thing, you know, maybe it's up to this current generation to take it in a direction that they want it to go. Um, it's a little bit clandestine from the outside. I think like you, you know, we're just curious, we would just want to support so many of my peers just, we just want to help in a in a way that is uh, right and positive moving forward. But we don't know what that is. Um, so that's just one aspect of women's hockey and whatever comes of all of this, I think it'll be really great. You know, when it, when it sort of the dust settles and um, something comes out of it, there will be something amazing for women at the end, but currently it's the unknown. And what I feel terrible for is for the player currently um, wrapped up in it, who just doesn't get to play. I mean, it just doesn't get to have these experiences that I had in the book of sitting in the dressing room and hanging out with your peers and buying for a championship. I mean, club hockey was such a, a huge part of uh, me as, in my development and as a person and for my friendships. So they won't get that opportunity, which is just hard. Um, but who knows what will come out of it? Some sort of professional league that hopefully is a viable option um, for women. Um, but that's just, like I said, one aspect of women's hockey. And I think at the grassroots level and at the elite level at various different uh, age groups along the way, it is grown astronomically. So many more opportunities available for girls, um, whether it's collegiately, whether it's with universities. Um, and it is just amazing that they can uh, see peers playing um, and have those conversations and uh, be on the ice with their male counterparts training alongside them, being able to go um, get extra training and, um, you know, have options where they can watch things on video. Like there just is so many amazing aspects to women's hockey um, that we didn't have the privy to have growing up that I see that I just am so jealous of somebody like Brooklyn that it's just like there's this amazing tap and it's like which direction do you want to go and you, you get to choose your own future almost, which is incredible to see and um, I'm just like so excited for for your future.
2: One more from me, and then we'll let Brooklyn have uh, Kevin Woodley's famed just one more question before we let you go.
4: Okay. <laughs>
2: All right. um, I, I just love the quote um, that, that you left. I think it's on your website. We don't always get to choose the role we play, but we always get to choose how we play it. And that ties into the title of the book. Um, what did you mean by that? And how is that a lesson for everybody?
4: For sure. So that's sort of the lesson of my keynote address that I give um, when I talk to corporations or associations. And I think it's the part of the speech that resonates the most with people is that we don't always get to choose the role we play. And that could be within a a sporting environment. Um, It could be simply that you're put in a backup goalie position. It could be that you're not playing the power play. It could be that you're not the shootout final shooter. Um, We always want more and that extends to the corporate world where maybe somebody else is giving the presentation that you've done all the work for could be in a family environment um uh, being a mom now i know that um we you never get accolades as a parent that's just not part of parenting um but despite all of that despite uh what might seem like not the role that you want to be in um you always get to choose how you play that role so you get to choose um how you outwardly express your emotion, how you support the people around you, how you, what you bring to that moment. And I think that that's so key because we can all choose that. We can all choose to be a positive influence um, or a negative influence. And why not choose to be positive when you can share in somebody else's success and hence feel the success yourself, feel that joy yourself, knowing that you helped the team succeed.
2: Wonderful I you know the, the the book was inspiring to me in in so many ways and and thank you for it. Um, but before we let you go, Brooklyn, you want to hop in with one more?
5: Yeah, I just wanted to say overall, the book I learned so much from it, not just about hockey, but just life in general, whether it's about school, like relationships, personal life, just it was fantastic and it was great getting to meet you today and everything. so thanks so much for that. Well, thank you, Brooklyn. Thanks for being on the show, too. I appreciate you um,
4: coming on and asking some questions and just even reading the book. That uh, means a lot to me.
2: Absolutely. Thank you, Brooklyn. So, the book is The Role I Played by Sammy Joe Small. And we're going to encourage all our listeners to pick up a copy at their local retailer uh, today's book launch day. Uh, of course, we'll have links on the site and in the show notes with the podcast as well. And if anybody would like to learn more about uh, opportunities to see Sammy speaking or to have her speak with your company, or to work with her on the ice, you can visit her website at uh, sammyjoesmall.ca. Sammy, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day today.
4: Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, there's, there's, there's every, every time that you think that the story's finished, there's another nook to the conversation with uh, Sammy Joe and David Hutchison. That was awesome. And Brooke, uh, congratulations. a uh, Great debut and uh, really proud of you. Uh, jumping in there and talking to uh, uh, such an accomplished goaltender in the in the world of uh, of sports. So, uh, Woody, just uh, your take on what you heard and what you've read.
1: Well, I mean, if you don't come out of that interview wanting to read the book, um, somehow the, the, the uh, sample copy was sent to Hutch, so I know he hasn't been able to put it down, but we're eventually going to have to get it out of his greasy little paws and sent back over to here in Vancouver, or I could just get off my wallet and buy one myself but I came out of that interview wanting to read this book um, because I found her so engaging. And then hearing Hutch talk about, you know, just how, how he got pulled into it and couldn't put it down. And um, you know, you guys know me. I don't read a lot of books. I'm not a big reader. I think uh when we had Clint Malarchuk on, that was I read that one cover to cover in a couple nights for that interview. Um, reading the game by Dryden, I've been dragging through that this summer. Uh, it sounds like I've got one up next on the queue because uh, I I don't know, just all the stories. And Hutch, the one for me, you already mentioned it, but really making your own chest protector and then wearing it, like,
0: right that's freaking A- at awesome. And Belfour, Ryan Miller, there's there's shades of those two guys. Absolutely. Well, and
2: I, wa- I want to follow up with her and ask if she still has it or if we can get an image of it because it sounds like it was... I mean a Stanford mechanical engineering project it was groundbreaking in its own right so it would be wonderful to see.
0: What's up on the website uh, ingle
2: magazine hutch What is up on the website uh, as usual the content keeps keeps rolling in um I actually Kevin you've got a good story about the pro reads because we've we've added a couple more pro reads this week and and you had somebody phone you looking to, to have a look
1: yeah, at yeah, them Yeah I'm not sure if I'm allowed to give names uh, I probably should have got that permission no, so no need um to. but yeah, certainly um, uh, a prospect name you would recognize. Who's already in his first year pro with a big team. Uh, reached out to us uh, about a subscription. Uh, one of the coaches he works with, one of the sports psychologists he works with, had talked about how pro reads could be good, and he thought that he actually thought that this could help his off-season training. Seeing how other goaltenders think and read the game as they move around the ice, and so that's that's pretty cool. Um, you know, we teased it on social media already. When pro goalies, and I have this all the time, and I actually, frankly, as much as this is back padding for us, I actually feel like I need to start hitting record on these things. As I said to you, Hutch, he left me a voicemail, which is, he's lucky I ever got back to him. I never even checked my voicemails, but like an idiot, I, del- yeah. I deleted it because that would have been the perfect clip. We wouldn't have had to say who it was. You could have just heard the voice. Um, I have this conversation with the goalie coaches. Andrew Allen said the same thing after we stopped our interview about just how valuable it is to see how other guys read plays. And what I loved about the last couple is Kerry ended up in a desperation situation, but when you really broke down the play and he talked about how he managed rush, like the way he took so much ice, but his plan was to give it up to the edge of the crease so he had backwards flow in case the guy drives the net. The way he went low and wide uh, around a screen, even though you think it might get him lost behind the screen, how it allowed him to load up like explaining why they're doing these things so that goalies can figure out whether this might work for them, if this is a situation they see. And the Reimer one this week didn't end up in a pretty save. It was ugly. And there was a mistake made. But I think most people would have identified the mistake as going into RVH early. He talked about the way he didn't flatten out in RVH as being the mistake. So again, even when they're not perfect, there's two parts. They never give up the desperation but that ability to recognize, self-diagnose, even when it doesn't result in a clean save, you can learn from a guy like James Reimer explaining what he saw, the reasoning for the way he played it. And even when it doesn't work out, there's a lesson there. And a lot of people are telling us these are invaluable. And this is me telling you as listeners, what are you waiting for? Grab a subscription to Ingold Premium so you can take the same steps that this top prospect's
2: taking. You know, we've all been on the ice with all sorts of different goaltending coaches, very privileged to be. And the lessons you're learning in pro reads very rarely come up on the ice in a coaching scenario. When you're going through drills at goalie school, they're very much looking at the majority of the cases. You know, if this happens, you would do this. This is an option that might happen, you should be ready for. And here we're getting pros breaking down what the real game is about. So once you've got those, that framework built in your game, now these guys are taking it to the next level, talking about what happens. Um, you know, when things go outside that framework and how you can, can then take that to another level. And, and so I learn every something, every time I edit them and I've seen them all umpteen times, and yet there's always something there. So as Woody said, highly recommended. And we're up to
1: what now, Hutch, like 41, 42 of them up. So if you buy an annual subscription, you will literally have 40 reads from NHL goaltenders, Carey Price, Carter Hart, James Reimer. Um, I, I'm actually brain cramping on some of the some of the best ones we've had are from Mike Condon. Um, just just there's there's about eight or nine different guys. Craig Anderson, Freddie uh, Anderson, yeah, Freddie Anderson, Frederick has been yeah. great. Cal Peterson. Yeah. So and and we've got some more planned here. It's been a bit of a you know, admittedly, um, busy month with the Stanley Cup playoffs. But uh, back off of that train uh, into the draft next week, into free agency, and then just we're gonna be we're gonna be hitting up guys for more pro reads. Uh, right through this off season so we can help goalies as they go into their seasons.
0: Pro reads, uh, check them out. Uh, the game happens fast and sometimes there are no uh, rhymes or reasons uh, for the way things happen. But uh, we know that uh, unexpected things do occur. And in the case of Henrik Lundqvist, uh, the king may have to uh, change his, uh, his castle, but we know he's going to be the same old guy. Uh, no ordinary Sammy Joe today. Yes, no small feat either writing a book and being a world champion. And we thank her for her contribution to In Goal Radio, the podcast. On behalf of the founders uh, of In Goal Magazine, Kevin Woodley and David Hutchison, I'm Darren Millard. Thanks for listening to In Goal Radio, the podcast presented by the Hockey Shop, source for sports, Surrey.